Hi, and welcome back to episode 21. This is Occupy Militia. Our guest is Dr. Edwin Vieira. Say hello, Doc. Hello. Thank hey. you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. This is uh, your second time on the show with us, and we didn't have enough time to talk about this last time. Um, what, we, uh, what we'd like to do is uh, get things rolling. Let me introduce my two co-hosts, Melinda Pillsbury-Foster. Please say hello. Hi. How, how are you all doing today? I really think this is going to be fun with Dr. Vieira. Uh, I've been reading your work for a long time. And Robin Kerner uh, with Blue Republicans. Uh, can you say hi, Robin? And do you have some questions for Dr. Vieira? We'd like to get him to take a look at the Declaration of Independence for us. Well, uh, well first of all, yeah, uh, good to be with you, uh, Dr. Vieira. Um, good to be uh, to meet you, in quotes. Um, you're an important figure in the movement, so uh, this is a privilege. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Terry, look, I know, I know you had a set-up um, plan for this call, so why don't you kick it off, and I will, uh, I'll take it, I'll pick up my hook when I see it. Terry, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I just was muted out. Uh, we need to uh, take a look, if we can, at the declaration, uh, and you can explain better than I can why we need to look at the declaration here, Dr. Vieira. Uh, we wanted to try and take a sh real quick 20-minute shot at parsing out what is basically the heart of liberal. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, what's in there that's crucial to us, Dr. Vieira? Well, I suppose that all of it is, except that you have left out uh, provision that comes earlier. Uh, the Declaration was designed to enable the colonists to, as it says, assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. And that, of course, is the key factor in the entire document, that these principles that are set out in the Declaration of Independence, some of which you've read, uh, were not generated by the colonists themselves. They were drawn from and were to be consistent with the laws of nature and nature's God. And, of course, those laws go back a long way in Western civilization. So they're drawing this concept, these self-evident truths that all men are created equal, from those laws. They're drawing from those laws the concept that they are endowed by their creator, because, of course, they're talking about the laws of nature's God with certain unalienable rights, they list only three of them, although those are, those are three very large categories, at least when you get into liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And then they make the important point that the purpose of government is to secure these rights, that governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed for the purpose of securing these rights. And it's important to focus on those words, just powers. That is, the consent of the governed, such as it is, can never delegate to any form of government unjust powers because all powers of government, all powers of the people who give the consent to government derive ultimately from the laws of nature and of nature's God in which there are recognized no injustices, no unjust powers. So if you tie this all together, these statements 
set out a very strict set of criteria for the formations of governments. They have to be derived from the consent of the governed. They have to exercise solely just powers. Those just powers must secure, in one way or another, inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And ultimately, they must be perfectly consistent with the laws of nature and of nature's God, or else there is some inconsistency in the system which requires correction. Okay, the second part that we'd like to parse out is that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it's the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Uh, what's the key to that particular section? Well, it's a government is basically an instrument. It's an instrument of the will of the people to secure the people's safety and happiness. And in the final analysis, the people decide what the form of government shall be, what its principles, and what organization of powers it shall have. Again, going back, of course, to the limitation that the people have to act within the confines of the laws of nature and nature's God. <clears throat> now, what's interesting in this particular passage you read is the two verbs, the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, referring to some form of government that has become destructive of the ends of government. Because most people look at the Declaration of Independence as being a document which asserts a right of the people to abolish a form of government. Because basically that's what happened in 1776. The colonists were part of the British imperial structure of government. And they broke that tie as the Declaration of Independence says, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. So as far as they were concerned, as far as the colonies were concerned, they abolished the British form of government with respect to them. But the Declaration of Independence does not say that that's the only way in which the people can deal with a form of government that in some shape or form becomes destructive of the ends of government because the other alternative is to alter that form of government. So the Declaration of Independence states the existence of an ongoing right of the people to correct problems that they may discover in the particular form of government that they have. So it would include uh, resistance to actions by uh, rogue public officials that are contradictory of the principles of the government, and then restoration of those principles, sort of a renewal of the form of government, without necessarily abolishing it. And that's very important because uh, in a situation such as we have today, where all sorts of unconstitutional activities are more or less a, you know, typically involved with the operations of government at the national level, or the state level, or even the local level, uh, the alternative is not the black and white one of either we live with this or somehow we abolish the entire system, every jot and tittle of the system. We also have the right under the Declaration of Independence recognized to alter this form of government or portions of the form in order to correct it. About 13 minutes left in this section. Uh let me go ahead with the next piece. Prudence indeed will dictate 
that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Dr. Vieira? Well, I think that states uh, something of a self-evident truth. Uh, Governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And I think they're thinking there of mistakes that are made, negligence, uh, maybe to some extent uh, you know, in, intentional faults on the part of uh, political figures or public officials, but they don't rise to a sufficient level to take the, let's not use the word extreme, but the stringent action of altering or abolishing a form of government itself in whole or in part. And as they say, experience has shown that men are most, more disposed to suffer, suffer evils. The point of the Declaration of Independence is that at some point, those evils are no longer sufferable. And at that point, prudence will actually dictate that in some respect, the form of government needs to be altered or abolished. So this particular statement is really a two-edged sword. But it does point out in this particular case, case of the Declaration of Independence of, of the colonies, that they had gotten to the point with the evils that they had discovered were no longer sufferable, that the only prudent thing that they could do was to dissolve the political bands which had connected them with Britain. And I wanted to, I, we touched on this when I spoke to you about a year ago. You know one of my pet peeves is when I hear somebody talking about sheeple. Uh, Americans are not sheep. Um, I, I think this section of the Declaration speaks directly to that, that what is happening right now is individuals uh, have not gotten to the point that the evils are insufferable yet. Can you touch on that? Well, I think some of that has to do with denial, that people are looking at a situation and they're simply refusing to face facts that the form of government or the actions of rogue officials within some form of government have gotten beyond the point at which they can be prudently tolerated any further. And that's the grave difficulty because, of course, that depends upon insight and it depends upon education, it depends upon people paying attention to what's going on around them. And the complexity of society makes those things more and more difficult to assume, uh, assume in the sense that other people are, in fact, performing those, those functions. So if we look at society today and compare it to society in the late 1700s, one would say, my heavens, the American colonists would have rebelled long, long ago if they were living at the end of the 20th century or the beginning of the 21st century. I mean, there's just no comparison to the political, uh, legal, uh, governmental evils that we are suffering from now uh, in comparison to what the founding fathers were suffering from. Uh, but on the other hand, the complexity of society would lead one to the conclusion that even under these circumstances, you have to be very careful in dealing with the problems. Uh, I give as an example the Federal Reserve System, which is reaching the point of insufferability. But the complexity of that system in our entire economic life demands that it be handled uh, in a very careful systematic and scientific way, uh, not just saying, well, let's abolish this thing, because the consequences of let's abolish it uh, are probably uh, potentially worse uh, than maintaining it the way it's functioning now. 
We've got about nine minutes left in this entire section. Melinda, uh, you had talked about uh, psychopaths. Uh, Dr. Vieira, you had touched base on uh, I needed to look up ponerology, and Melinda already had read that book, which <laughs> didn't surprise me. Uh, can you guys, real quick, uh, how does this fit with, with what we were just talking about? Melinda? Well, the original population of the of the, the colonies were in small towns, and one of the aspects of psychopathy is that where it's localized, a community, and people know each other, it's very much more difficult for a psychopath to operate because they become known. You understand that this is not a person you can trust, and they become marginalized. And unfortunately, because of the way psychopaths operate, when you have uh, larger groups of people and they can be more anonymous, what tends to happen is that it actually works to the benefit of the psychopaths um, because they can pull the wool over people's eyes and you don't have a referential system of a community that can react appropriately to their behavior. About seven minutes left. Dr. Vieira, did that trigger off anything for you? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And the other side of that coin is, of course, our system is supposedly a federal system, uh, pyramidal, but with most of the power at the base and less and less power going to uh, the apex. Now, in that kind of a system, as was just pointed out, where you have local control and local knowledge of the individuals who are working within the political system trying to obtain public office, the likelihood of psychopathic control is minimized. But when you break down that kind of a system so that more power is gravitating, as it were, to the apex of the pyramid than is remaining at the base, and especially when people at the, ape at the base of the pyramid are not as closely connected with and therefore can't know as well people operating in the middle and upper levels of the pyramid in, in the rare areas of political power, then you're opening up the door to these kinds of aberrant personalities getting into those upper levels because you don't have the various checks and balances of, uh, of a federal structure that might tend to identify them, remove them in some way, constrain their activities, what have you. Got about six minutes left in this section. I need to touch on the last part that we want to parse out here. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. And I'm going to skip a little bit. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Doctor? Well, when a long train of abuses, new and so forth, that... Uh statement is what could be called or would be called today, I suppose, a conspiracy theory. I mean, the declaration is basically a conspiracy theory document. It says, here's what's happened to us. Some people have intentionally taken actions, usurpations, which are, of course, in violation of some law, violation of this Constitution, abuses, which would be excessive use of some law, for the purpose of... Right? So evincing a design to reduce them, that is the colonists, under absolute despotism. And then they go on 
in the body of the Declaration to put forward what I would call a legal indictment of King George III and his ministers along these lines. And then the point is, once this has been discovered, at that point, it is the right of the people to throw off this kind of abusive and usurpatory regime, but it is also their duty to do so. Their duty where? Where does this duty come from? Well, it comes from the laws of nature and of nature's God. A form of government operating through abuses and usurpations that is trying to reduce people under absolute despotism is a form of government that cannot be tolerated under the laws of nature and nature's God, and those laws require the people in some manner to throw off this government. Now, if we come to the final statement that you quoted about the pledging uh, to each other of our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, of course, one has to remember that the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, the people who were representatives in the Continental Congress and so forth, that founding fathers were people of uh, very high repute. Uh, they were more or less well-known to each other, sometimes personally, sometimes by reputation. Uh, they were people generally who had uh, fortunes in the uh, physical sense, monetary sense, economic sense. And certainly they were people who had honor. The concept of personal honor was something that was well-known and well-esteemed in that period in history. So one can imagine these people signing the document under those terms with full confidence in one another. Uh, difficulty in our society is it is uh, improbable that you could put together a group, certainly in large numbers, that I think would honestly be able to sign that kind of a declaration that they could actually pledge, let's forget about their lives and their fortunes, I mean, that's a physical matter, but their sacred honor, that's a spiritual matter. You know, in this society, that concept of honor has really diminished to the point at which I think very, very few people understand it as a concept, let alone live it in their own lives. Okay, we've got about uh, two minutes left. Robin, uh, quick. Well, <laughs> I really wanted to ask a question, but it can't be answered in two minutes. Um, that, that's been kicking around my head uh, since the uh, while evils are sufferable line. Um, one thing I've been saying, uh, Dr. Vieira, as I travel around and try and get people to see where we are in our nation right now, is that it appears, looking at history, 1776, 1689, 1215, and so on, and there are a number of dates in between, that power can get a long way removing our freedoms politically, but it's only when the removal of freedoms become an, an impingement in our everyday lives, when common people, enough common people feel that what they could do yesterday, they will not be able to do in the same way tomorrow, that the, that the backlash starts in the culture and that you can get to these kind of steps in the tradition, the Anglo tradition of liberty, where, uh, where liberty is restored in some way. You get these step changes, of which 1776 is one. Um, so there's this, so I kind of use this notion of cultural freedom as the freedom that we actually exercise. Uh, for example, to make this concrete, um, Edward Snowden didn't tell us anything new about what the, uh, the power that the government claimed for itself to violate our privacy. He didn't actually, you know, you could read the NDAA, you could read the Patriot Act, etc. before Snowden came along. But now that Snowden's come along, 
he's moved something from the political realm also almost into the cultural realm. It makes us feel a bit different every day. We make a phone call, it feels different. And you're already seeing the, the political effects of that cultural change. Can you speak to that? Well, I think one aspect of it is the notoriety. That is, if you go back in American history not too far, you come to J. Edgar Hoover, and it was well known, certainly in the, in the 40s and the 50s, maybe to a certain extent in the 30s, that Hoover was engaged in massive operations of spying. Now, they didn't have the highly sophisticated uh, technical equipment, but he was certainly engaged in wiretapping and other, other forms of spying. Now, to the extent that it was reputed that many people in Congress were terrified of this fellow because he had the goods on them personally in one way or another, and that he actually used this information for the purpose of bribery or blackmail or whatever control. So it certainly should not have been surprising to anyone with the development of the technological surveillance state that the things that Hoover did in his primitive way would have been done in a much more sophisticated and widespread manner. But now the Snowden-type revelations have laid out precisely how far they have gone off the deep end in the NSA and probably other CIA, other agencies, FBI for sure. Uh, and they've goaded quite a number of people at fairly high levels in the political world, especially uh, uh, foreigners. Chancellor Merkel of Germany the other mm. day coming out that her uh, phone calls or whatever emails had been intercepted. So looking at it from that perspective, I think the average person says, oh, yes, well, now it's confirmed to me that anything that I do on the Internet, perhaps anything I do on the telephone, maybe even anything I do through the post office, somehow or other there's the possibility that that may result in actual surveillance of my activities. More interesting to me, if it comes out, and I imagine it will at some stage, is that they have been manipulating the markets in this way. Mm. I cannot believe that agencies like the CIA and the NSA have not been using this kind of access that they have to gain information about all sorts of markets, especially financial markets, gold and silver markets and whatever, and then have been using that for political purposes or perhaps for uh, solely for the purposes of creating black budgets or whatever, off-budget off monies that they can then apply to various activities. And with also with that information, you can do a heck of a lot of bribery and blackmail. And I think when that comes out, and I imagine it will have to come out at some stage, that will be the, the, the final blow of the hammer that drives in the nail. Because it's one thing to say that they're looking at people's emails and they're discovering you know, love affairs or whatever. It's another thing to say that they're actually manipulating the entire market system, perhaps the entire financial system, with the consequences that would have initially in terms of redistributions of wealth, but the long-term consequences because if they follow up some manipulation in currency markets or the precious metal markets, they could trigger a very serious worldwide crisis. So these people are playing with dynamite, and I imagine they are doing it. And when that comes out, there will be all hell to pay. We have about 17 minutes left, and this is basically the backstory. This is what we needed to know to get to what you're really here to talk to us about, and that's the constitutional militia. And we're just going to stay out of your way here for about 17 minutes. Let her rip, Doc. Well, if you start with the Declaration of Independence, 
and you understand what the ultimate purpose is to protect the rights of individuals living in a free society, society that is operating according to the laws of nature and nature's God. And you understand the Declaration of Independence forms the legal as well as the political foundation for the Constitution because as the Declaration of Independence says, it's asserting full power in these free and independent states, that is the colonies after they declare their independence, to do all acts and things which independent states may of right do. And that's the purpose of the Constitution, to provide a national government, the union government, in order to be able to perform all those acts and things which free and independent states may do in consonance with the laws of nature and nature's God. Now the question then becomes, how does one protect this system? How does one make sure that this system doesn't fall into some form of decay such that the form of government becomes destructive of the ends for which the form of government was created in the first place? And there I think you need to go to the most important 13 words in the United States Constitution. Second Amendment, first clause, which most people don't read, or if they do read it, they don't pay attention to it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep their arms shall not be infringed. Well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Now that's the only place in the Constitution in which the Constitution says that anything is necessary for any purpose. It doesn't say that Congress is necessary. It doesn't say the President is necessary. It doesn't say the Supreme Court is necessary. It doesn't even say that the states are necessary. But it says that a well-regulated militia is necessary. And necessary for what purpose? Well, for the ultimate purpose of the Declaration of Independence, if we can go back there. The security of a free state, not a police state, not a totalitarian state, not a monarchical state. You can run out all the possible adjectives. But a free state, and a free state must refer you back to these principles in the Declaration of Independence, which are the principles of freedom. And security, well, security includes quite a few things. It includes... Uh, Security that might be provided by a military or paramilitary force on one extreme, and it might be security of a social nature on the other extreme uh, to provide against problems of, of unemployment or social dislocation of one kind or another. And in the middle, we can imagine situations arising, arising out of natural disasters, industrial accidents, and on and on, in which you would need an organized structure socially to deal with them. So then you turn to the first words in that clause, a well-regulated militia. Now, that's not the first place where the word militia appears in the Constitution. It appears in Article 1, Section 8, Clauses 15 and 16, and Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, in reference to things called the militia of the several states. Now, interestingly enough, the Constitution doesn't define these things. And there are quite a few things the Constitution doesn't define. It's not a dictionary. At the time, it was assumed that everyone knew what these words meant. So when someone said militia, he knew what a militia was. If someone said dollar, which is another word undefined in the Constitution, he knew what that word meant. And on and on we go. And in fact, I would say that in 1788, 1776, 1788, the Constitution was ratified, 1792, when the Bill of Rights was ratified, every adult... American, and specifically every adult male American in the 13 states knew perfectly well what a well-regulated militia was because he was either 
enrolled in such a militia himself, or he had been at some time in his life, unless he had been so physically disabled that he would have been disqualified. So this was a word that was as well known as a word such as jury, right? and in fact probably more well-known in terms of experience, because every adult, able-bodied, free male in the colonies and the states was required by law at some time in his life uh, to function within the militia, whereas people were called to jury duty adventitiously, and some people might be their entire lives with never being called to a jury. So then the question becomes, well, all right, that's what, that's what a militia is or what a militia was. How do we know what a well-regulated militia was or should be today because the Constitution hasn't been amended in that respect? And you can find this out by going back to what the colonists and the independent states actually did with respect to militia during that period from the early 1600s through the ratification of the Constitution in 1788. And when you do that, you will discover dozens and dozens of statutes actually extending from the first charters of the various colonies all the way through the period of constitutional ratification in which statutes were laid out the forms of organization and the equipment and the training and the discipline and the duties of members of the various colonial and then state militia. And what's interesting about those statutes, and I, I, think I've, I think I've read most of those, I hope all, essentially all of them, is they're all essentially the same. They all follow exactly the same pattern of regulation, and that's what these statutes essentially call themselves, an act to regulate the militia of such and such, an act to amend an act to regulate the militia of such and such. And that word regulation was used to refer to the terms and conditions and specifications that were set out in these statutes. And in my book, The Sword and Sovereignty, I go through two of the colonies and states, Rhode Island and Virginia, for reasons which are made clear in the book. They were essentially polar opposites, or they were on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the types of colonies they were and the character of the colonies and go through their militia statutes from the 1600s all the way through the period of ratification of the Constitution. And again, as I said before, these statutes are remarkably uh, parallel in their structures. And the basic principle was that the militia were and are governmental institutions. They were never private bodies of any kind. They were always formed pursuant to some kind of charter or typically a statute later on. Secondly, they embodied or enrolled all eligible citizens. And in those days, you had two categories of people who were ineligible uh, to some extent. Uh, women were ineligible because their legal status was different from that of men. They were unemancipated. Uh, a woman was either subject, legally subject to her father or subject to her husband, unless she happened to be a widow or a spinstress. And so as a result, they had a different legal status. And also the social mores of the time were clearly against having women serving in military or paramilitary capacities. And the militia in those days were largely military and paramilitary in what they did. But it was all able-bodied adult males, free males, because of course they had slavery in every colony. Every colony initially recognized slavery in one form or another. 
and it was obvious that you could not arm slaves and train slaves in a paramilitary capacity because that would be the end of slavery very quickly. But otherwise, every able-bodied adult from about 15 or 16 years old all the way up to 45, 50, 55 years of age was enrolled in the militia. And the upper age limit was primarily the result of prudent determination that someone 55 years old had arthritis or poor eyesight or some other ailment that couldn't be cured and therefore he couldn't perform most of the functions it required at that time. And insofar as those functions tended at that time to be military and paramilitary, of course the British colonies were fighting the French and the Canadians and the Indians, sometimes the Spanish. Piracy was also a large problem in the early 1700s. They were structured as military or paramilitary institutions. And so every able-bodied adult male enrolled in those institutions was required to possess at all times at least one firearm and various what they called accoutrements, so an ammunition, or maybe a bayonet, a tomahawk. If he was in the cavalry, he'd have to have a saber and a horse. And this was all listed in the statutes. The only people who were excused from that were conscientious objectors for obvious reasons, the Quakers, for instance, because uh, tenets of their religion precluded them from bearing arms. But that didn't preclude them from being members of the militia. They were brought into the militia and they were told to do something of a non-combatant nature. And in some of these statutes, you find them being sent out as uh, messengers and couriers and, and spies. And, of course, that was more dangerous than carrying arms because if you were apprehended as a spy under the laws of that time, still today, you could be executed immediately, whereas if you were caught under arms, functioning as a militiaman, then supposedly you would be held as a prisoner of war and you know, not mistreated. So everyone functioned in some way in the militia, even the slaves and the people of color who were free that were generally disenfranchised otherwise uh, had some function to perform. They served in a, uh, what we would call the engineering battalions, right? Shovels, pickaxes to build field fortifications, that type of activity. And even the women had a role to play in this because if an able-bodied male was under 21 but above 16, he was required to join the militia even though he was a minor. And the difficulty then arose that many minors didn't have the money to procure their own firearms because under the militia laws, the individual had to procure, he had to buy his own firearm in the market the free market, and maintain this in his own personal possession at home. Only if he were too poor to do so, would some other arrangement be made for him. The town or the county or maybe the militia itself would provide him with this equipment. So here we had a number of miners who were required to serve, uh, but they may, might have no income of their own. Some of them might be apprentices, they might be servants, they, they might be children from relatively poor families. So what were they to do? Uh, they couldn't be held accountable for not having the money to buy their own gun. So their fathers were held accountable, or their masters were held accountable, or in a household that was run by a woman, then the mistress or the mother would be held accountable. So even the women had this financial obligation to the militia in those types of circumstances. Then all the militiamen were trained in some way, primarily in, in those days in military or paramilitary activities. And they certainly needed that kind of training because of the nature of the way uh, battles were fought, at least the set-piece battles that were fought by regular armies. 
And, of course, they were disciplined uh, within the militia, typically by a set of fines, number one, if they didn't have the right equipment, if their equipment was not in proper repair, if they didn't bring it to the militia musters, which were held on a regular basis, uh, violated various other provisions of the militia code, then they would be fined monetarily, and if they couldn't pay, then their, you know, their property would be seized as, as if they were any other debtor. And then in some circumstances, there are actual corporal punishments, especially if they perform badly in the course of a muster, obviously, in the field where they would be subject to a court-martial. So the whole point of this structure was it was the total organization of the effective part of society, effective in the sense of performing the functions that they needed to perform. Now, if you read those statutes, you don't find a great emphasis on dealing with natural disasters. They didn't have industrial accidents of any consequence then, but they certainly had natural disasters, hurricanes at least on the East Coast. But the people were already organized in any event. So if one of those events occurred, that organization would have been brought into play without having a particular statutory provision. The same would have been true if there had been local uh, food shortages, famines, or, or slave rebellions, or what have you. If we look at that system being applied today, and of course the reason we're thinking about applying it today is because the Constitution requires it to exist. This is what most people don't realize, that the militia of the several states, and there are 50 of them today, there were 13 of them originally, one in each state. These are state institutions. They're not creations of the Congress in the way the Army is or the Navy is. And they are permanently incorporated in the Constitution. The Constitution presumes that these things were in existence when it was ratified, which of course is the case. And it presumes that they will continue to be in existence as state institutions. And it gives Congress the authority to call forth the militia to perform certain functions, execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, repel invasions. But all other possible functions that these institutions can perform are left to the states. So we think of natural disasters, industrial accidents, some of those situations which don't fall into the three categories under which Congress could call forth the militia, they're left to the states to control. About so two, the, oh, sorry about that, Doc. Just about two minutes left in this okay. section. So our, our problem today is that although the Constitution tells us in no uncertain terms that a well-regulated militia is necessary to secure a free state, these institutions, for all practical intents and purposes, do not exist. You will find in no state of the Union a militia structure which meets essentially any of the criteria of the militia that were established during the pre-constitutional era and that are incorporated by reference, as it were, into the Constitution. And there's our difficulty because if such institutions are necessary to the security of the free state and those institutions are absent, then by constitutional hypothesis, the security of a free state is endangered in many, many ways. And we are seeing these ways appearing more and more each day. Minute left. Uh, the National Guard obviously is not militia. Can you address that real quick? Yeah, the, the National Guard derives from a series of statutes that started in 1903. And National Guard is actually part of the troops or ships of war that the states may keep in time of peace with the consent of Congress. Article 1, 
Section 10, Clause 3. During the colonial period, the colonies not only had militia, but they could set up state or colonial troops, which they did, uh, so-called provincial troops. And these were essentially paid volunteers. They were volunteers and they were paid. They went off and fought with, you know, alongside the British. And they were different from, from the militia. So you had those three categories. You had the army, continental army, you had the militia, and you had the state troops. And the Constitution provided for them in, in three ways. The militia was incorporated as permanent bodies. Congress was given the power to raise and support armies, but doesn't necessarily have to exercise that. And the states were told they couldn't keep their own armies or ships of war unless Congress consented. But if Congress consented, then these bodies of troops can be raised. And that's what the National Guard and so-called naval militia are. They are the troops, the ships of war that the states have been allowed to raise with the consent of Congress. And, of course, when Congress gave that consent, it attached various conditions, such as the militia could be called out to do things, excuse me, the National Guard could be called out to do things which the Constitution does not allow the militia to be called out to do. The National Guard could be sent overseas to fight in foreign wars or other kinds of military adventures, which the militia cannot be required to do. And so we can go down that list of distinctions and see that the National Guard is something other than the militia. But we have this, the interesting thing is we have the National Guard, which is the kind of contingent body that constantly says, well, we can have them or not as the Congress consents. But we don't have the thing that the Constitution says is absolutely necessary and incorporates as permanent institutions within it, its own original body. That's about, the irony of our situation. About 19 minutes left. Uh, Douglas MacArthur is supposed to have summed up all military disasters in two words, too late. Um, I'd like to, in this last 19 minutes, how do we implement this? And bear in mind, Robin is building a network. In, he has nine states out of the 50 already that he has an organization going of liberals. Uh, Melinda is set up as a presidential candidate and can participate at least in the third-party debates. So you're talking to politicians, you're talking to policymakers. Um, what do we do to implement, guys? Well, the first thing is understanding. Uh, in, in my book, Sword and Sovereignty, I go through the history and then I lay out 17 organizational principles of the militia. So they come up with 34 or you know, 68, depending on how detailed you want to become, but basically 17. And the idea is, first, to understand what those are. Why these institutions have to be structured in a certain way? What is that supposed to do? Then the second point is, well, how do we go about, as I like to say, revitalizing the militia, bringing these things back into active service? Because they've never been removed from the Constitution. It's not as if we have to create something new. They're there. They're just moribund because Congress has left them atrophy and the various state governments have left them atrophy. And the answer there is actually pretty simple. Simply draft a statute that meets these criteria. Now, under present circumstances, you'd probably have to start off requiring people to do far less than they were required to do in the colonial period, simply because most Americans have no experience with functioning in the militia. In fact, most of them think of the militia as a bunch of wild guys running around in the woods with camouflage outfits and AK-47 rifles. <laughs> uh, that's a picture in their mind. So I would suggest a statute that gave 
fairly uh, broad exemptions to most people from most duties. There are some that they would have to perform, some kinds of minimal training duties to begin to get them into the mindset of this. And then provide that most of the other functions on kind of experimental basis would be performed by people who would be essentially volunteers. And I'm fairly sure that you could get 5% of the population, 10% of the population that would be willing to come forward and volunteer for various specialized kinds of activities that we need to develop, especially when they were being provided with funds and equipment that would come from fees that were paid by the other 95 or 90% of the population that were gaining exemptions from further activities. So the thing would become a self-financing operation. Robin, nine minutes, uh, not nine, 17 minutes left. Uh, you have nine states with an organization. What's the political climate for this? Yeah, I, this is this is very interesting. Um, I'm still trying to get past the, the the fact that the militia was essentially a governmental body, and I'm trying to square that with the assertion made by many uh, Second Amendment advocates that the fundamental purpose of the Second Amendment was to be able to basically shoot back at a tyrannical government. And I'm worried that if we tried to practically go back to what the Constitution asks, asks us to do, such a militia, that that would be the fastest, um, you know, amendment that would get um, uh, put forward in modern times would be to undo the Second Amendment, which apparently justifies the bearing of arms based on this militia, because because the instantiation of this militia would be so foreign to us now, so foreign that we just wouldn't have it. And that we therefore, if you'll excuse the pun, might end up shooting ourselves in the foot by trying to push it. Because by, you see what I'm saying? By pushing the militia, we could end up damaging the gun rights which are tied to the militia. So could you speak to that, Dr. Vieira, this, um, th this issue of the militia being essentially governmental and yet the, those who would defend the Second Amendment most strongly do so in terms of, in basically anti-government terms. I, I, I think this would be a problem if we try to reinstantiate well, this. Yes, I, I think the people who defend the Second Amendment from anti-government terms don't understand what the Constitution is about. Constitution sure. Is not, the Constitution is not a recipe for anarchy. The Constitution is a recipe in the Declaration or a recipe for popular self-government. And as Mao Zedong said, political power goes out of the barrel of a gun. Mm. Uh, the people who have political power are the ones who ultimately have the guns and vice versa. And therefore, if you want popular self-government, popular sovereignty, it's the people themselves that must exercise that ultimate quantum of power. And that ultimate quantum of power in the American experience was exercised through the militia for the reason that the militia consisted of every able-bodied adult male, free male, who were the people who exercised political power. They were the only ones who went on juries. They were the only ones who voted. They were the only ones who held public office. It was the same group of people. Right? Now, the Second Amendment, individual rights people are living in a dream world. If you actually read the Second Amendment, and there are no provisions in the Constitution that are you know, extraneous, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Right. The right of the people to keep and bear arms is instrumental to the well-regulated militia. You can't have a well-regulated militia unless the people keep and bear arms, because by definition, a militia is an institution in which the people keep and bear arms, right? Mm -hmm. And the purpose of the militia is to provide the security of a free state. So working backwards in this amendment, the thing that's of consequence is the free state. 
If we could provide the free state some other way, we wouldn't need the militia. We wouldn't need the right to keep and bear arms. But the founding fathers recognized that's impossible. They kind of foresaw Mao Zedong in that sense, right? The security of a free state depends ultimately upon having this military power, if you will, in the hands of the right people, the people who would live in a free state. That's the well-regulated militia. And to accomplish that, we make sure that the people have the right to keep and bear arms because if we run into a situation where the form of government becomes destructive of the ends of proper government, these militias, which are governmental institutions themselves, will overthrow the rogue public officials operating in other forms, other parts of the government. There is never a, a, a time when government is somehow superseded. Even if you will give you the example of Virginia in 1775, their militia statute had run out in 1773 because they had essentially what we call sunset provisions in the statutes. So they came to the governor, the House of Burgesses, which was the House of Representatives in Virginia, came to the governor, who was a very staunch uh, British loyalist, and they said, we want to enact a number of statutes, but one of them was this militia statute, and the governor looked at that and said, well, we don't want that, do we? Or he didn't want that because it was 1775 and there was all sorts of difficulties developing uh, on the political front. So he simply refused to cooperate with the House of Burgesses. In uh, fact, he, he didn't show up at the meeting. So as a result, the statute was not enacted. Well, at, during the interim period, the, the Virginia colonists simply formed independent companies of the militia on the same basis as they would have done under the statute because they had already been trained to do this. They simply activated themselves according to the formula that they had already used going back more than 100 years. Hmm. Uh, and throughout, throughout the governor, I mean, he was, he was expelled from the colony. Then they created a, a convention, which is an interim form of government. One of the first things the convention did was to pass an ordinance dealing with, quote-unquote, regularizing the militia, setting down the terms of regulation in a statutory form. So there was that period of what I would call extra-legal activity where it wasn't clear who was actually in control politically, but the people of Virginia, and this happened in other places in the, in the Congress, people of Virginia were acting on the basis of the statutory structure and understanding of well-regulated militia that they had been operating under for a very long period of time. So what I tell people, these Second Amendment individual rights people, I said, you know, if you had a functioning militia now, all of those gun control statutes that you are so worried about that already exist, all of those imaginary gun control statutes that you fear will be enacted in the future, none of them like the Constitution could possibly apply to you. Ten minutes left, guys. Melinda, I keep hearing Douglas MacArthur saying, hello, too late. How do we speed this up? Well, it definitely needs to be sped up in some significant ways. And I think it's sort of ironic because I certainly am I'm very aware of the fact that the movement, which is in large part from the, from the, the right, um, has very much misunderstood this issue. And even though we have movements across the country um, which are starting to defy federal law uh, on a state level, this is an issue that I don't think has been taken up by any state, any place. 
and clearly it ought to be very much on the top of the agenda. Or um, I think, as the doctor has said, we need to go through a process of a very irregular period that is invalidated. Um, I'd like to have his reaction on that. Well, I would be very worried about a crisis situation and what I would call extra-legal or irregular activity. Because remember, in the colonial period, all of those people had personal experience with malicious structures. They knew what they were. They knew how to operate in them. They knew what their authority was. So when they had these short-term breakdowns, as occurred in Virginia, Virginia is kind of a classic case of this, and when they formed what they called independent companies to fill the vacuum, this was done on the basis of a great deal of experience and understanding. If the same situation were to arise today, the average person wouldn't know what to do. I mean, literally, he has no comprehension of this, especially given what was just said earlier, that all these Second Amendment advocates who have no idea what they're talking about hmm. when they talk about the Second Amendment and the right of people keeping their arms in, in relationship to a militia. And I mean no idea. All right? So I think this has got to be done the other way. It's got to be done by statutory revitalization, and that will require educating people at the grassroots level as to what these institutions are, why they were made integral parts of the Constitution, what needs to be done to get them back on track, and how as quickly as possible, once some kind of statute is passed, to integrate as many people into their operations. And actually, that was the first book I wrote on this subject called Constitutional Homeland Security, Volume 1, A Nation in Arms, uh, which lays out uh, one approach, at least, uh, to organizing people at the local level for the purpose of getting a statute passed in the state legislature. And my own view of it, if, if that doesn't happen, if, if we don't follow the, the uh, direction, as it were, of the Declaration of Independence to alter this form of government, the likelihood that we are going to be able to abolish it and put it in its place a new form of government consistent with the laws of nature and nature's God, I think, is a negative number. It's not even zero. I think that's a negative a good number. Point. I, I think we will get national socialism because the, the major economic political structure in this country is the military-industrial complex. Financial system goes down. The government loses all. Washington loses all credibility. The military-industrial complex will still be there, and it will try to assert its dominance, its control, in order to preserve itself. If you let that happen, and that's the worst of all possible worlds, the Founding Fathers were afraid of nothing more than standing armies. Nothing frightened them more than standing armies and what standing armies could do or would do, had done throughout history. And this is what we're facing. That's the alternative, I think, to the revitalization of the militia. Revitalization of the militia brings everybody in at the grassroots level. Most of these other reforms that I've heard from the patriot community don't really do that. Some elite group or self-styled elite group is going to decide, oh, the Tenth Amendment we're going to uh, implement by interposition or nullification. Who's going to do that? Well, some people only in the state legislature. That doesn't bring in the vast mass of people within the state. And you can think of some of these other schemes that people have come up. Constitutional convention. New constitutional convention is probably even worse. Right? 
Our problem, though, is not only do we not have militia structures in this country, but we are facing imminent crises that will cause social dislocation, civil unrest, and civil disobedience, which can be brought under control only by militia structures, unless we want to have some kind of martial law imposed by the U.S. Army. Those are your alternatives. When the Federal Reserve System collapses, as it will collapse, and the price structure goes with it, so that you have, for some period of time, real economic chaos, if people are not properly organized at the local level, economically, socially, and in a paramilitary sense, to deal with you know, the kind of criminality that will arise under those circumstances, then I think this country will move very, very quickly towards essentially military control. They may not put a general up front as the leader, may not have Juan Perón, but whoever is that puppet, his strings will reach back into the Pentagon. That's your alternative. Okay, I'd like to... I'd like to touch on a point here uh, is the state legislature is doing it. You know, there are some structures within state legislatures, at least in some states, that might be uh, persuaded to move in that direction. Sure. But there, if, you're, if it isn't the state legislature, how would you suggest that people at the most local level move in this direction? Well, Constitutional Homeland Security, that first book, suggests that people form what I call citizens' homeland security associations at the local level, because ultimately the militia structures would be centralized at the local level, in the towns, in the counties, whatever the local governmental entities would be. Now, these associations can't call themselves militia because there's no statute that regularizes them. But the idea was that people would get together and they'd say, what do we need to do in terms of organization to meet the problems that we foresee occurring in our community under various scenarios? And obviously one of those would be the paramilitary function, dealing with civil unrest, providing emergency medical services, providing perhaps employment and operative food security. You run down this list. I list a couple of dozen of these things in the book. As people get together and organize themselves to look into this problem at the local level, what is the best way of organizing ourselves? That being or becoming the predicate for the statute, because now when you finally decide to have enough information, you plug this experience into the statute and present to the legislators and say, this is the way we think these revitalized militia should be organized. Oh, and by the way, we have done some organization of our own. We have 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people in the state who have already done this work and they are prepared to become, as it were, volunteers, become the first enrollees once this statute has been enacted. So it's not pie in the sky. We are capable of doing this. And then we'll bring other people in to perform other kinds of services once we have you know, proven that this system works. Now, if worse came to worse and some major crisis broke out before a statute were passed or before that statute could be implemented, at a minimum, if you follow this type of program, you have a very large number of people organized at the local community level, which is more than we have now. Mm -hmm. We have nothing now. So, in a sense, I'm, I'm following the principle of the Virginia experience, where when Dunmore, the governor, refused to meet with the House of Burgesses and sign a new militia statute, the folks independently formed their own militia companies throughout the various counties. 
the difficulty today is we don't have that wealth of knowledge and experience that they had. They could do that automatically because they had been living this for decades. One minute left, guys. I, I do want to remind everyone that we do have quite a bit of database of experienced people. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of veterans uh, all across the country. They have the specialized knowledge of how a military organization is supposed to be structured. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel, and it's probably part of the reason why veterans are being targeted. Um, we've got just a few seconds. I want to thank Dr. Vieira again. We really would like to get you back on the show here. Uh, it's always superb. Uh, also, Melinda Pillsbury-Foster, Robin Kerner. Uh, this is Occupy Interview. This was Episode 21, and thanks for standing.